This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My God, Dukes are going to corner the entire frozen orange juice market. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and... What if all your money was tied up in a bank collapse? Today, we'll hear that story on a special episode of the show with the CEO of Tiller, Peter Paulson. From the time Peter first saw instability to finding out he had no access to his money at Silicon Valley Bank to the time he found out the bank was going under. You'll not only hear Peter's story, but also glean lessons about banking, diversification, relationships, risk management, and more. And now, let's go right to the live chat Joe had with Peter earlier this week, recorded on the Fireside app. Here's Joe Salcihai. Hey everybody, and as Doug said, welcome to a special episode of Stacking Benjamins. You know, just over a week ago, we had a special episode talking about the banking collapse, and OG asked the question, Ma'am, what if you were one of the CEOs that had to make some tough decisions during that time? And we've got one of those CEOs with us, a guy who I've been friends with for a while. And mostly, mostly not that he's not a great guy, because he's a great guy, but everybody that knows me knows how much I love his company, Tiller Money, uh, Tiller HQ. Say hello to Peter Polson. Peter, how are you, man? I'm fantastic, Joe. It's great to be back on your show. Dude, you've got to be doing a lot better now than you were uh, just over a week ago. Because when you reached out to me, I was like, <laughs> oh my, you're one of the CEOs that had to go through the valley of death. Yes. It's funny. I just had, uh, actually, my mother-in-law sent me this text because she was taking a train here and she was lost. And I had to help her get it sorted out. And she's like, I'm so sorry to bother you. I know you're in the middle of you know a busy work day. And I was like, it's no problem. I have tons of time. There was no bank run today. <laughs> so relative to last Friday, uh, a week ago, it's like every day is a pretty darn good day. I haven't lost seven figures. So, hey. Oh, my. I can't believe you still have hair. I thought you'd look more like me when we finally got, got together. <laughs> Let's start here. Tiller is not a public company, so you certainly 
I don't think you're a public company, but you guys, did you have private investors? Because when we were talking about this, you know, a lot of times there's these covenants with investors and, and CEOs were pressured into keeping their money there. Does Tiller have outside of investors, outside of maybe you and family members? We do. We do have outside investors. There are no specific covenants with our investors around where or how we keep our money. But at Tiller and at the last company that I led, uh, also a software company, Silicon Valley Bank is sort of the go-to bank. They provide services specifically tailored to help companies like ours. They're experienced with our needs. They're easy to work with. And so it was a no-brainer uh, to be using Silicon Valley uh, until was until that, last Friday. So this was their niche. I mean, we heard that a lot of fintech companies like yours, Peter, work with Silicon Valley Bank. But were you originally approached by them through like salespeople? Was it who everybody else was using in the business? Tell me about why it was a no-brainer. Yeah. So the last company that I was with, I believe it was investors that sort of suggested uh, setting it up with Silicon Valley Bank with this company. I just defaulted with Tiller, you know, several years ago now when we needed a bank, I just defaulted to Silicon Valley Bank because I knew that they they worked well with us. And I think if you survey broadly across software companies like ours, uh, Silicon Valley Bank has had a significant market share. How many employees does Tiller have now? We have 15 employees. And with 15 employees, let's talk about the cap because a lot, a lot of what people talk about now is the FDIC cap, right? This is, this is right. in the news everywhere. A lot of people don't understand how it works. Even for individuals, they don't understand how it works. But a $250,000 cap, Peter, for businesses, that's a very low cap. I mean, that's an incredibly low cap. It is a low cap. And we, uh, given our business in personal finance, given the trust we our customers place in us, you know, we are constantly managing risk. We are constantly evaluating how to keep our customers' data secure, how to deliver on the commitments we've made to our customers. So risk mitigations, like, you know, top of the list for us constantly. And I will say that the risk mitigation around a bank collapse was not on my radar. Uh, I mean, I knew, I knew if you quizzed me sure. two weeks ago, what's the FDIC limit, 250000 But But for us, I actually, believe it or not, the bank collapsed on Friday, two days before on Wednesday. I actually was having a conversation with our CFO. We were talking without any worries about Silicon Valley Bank. We were talking about the benefits of, of more than one bank just in terms of relationship building. And one of the things that we kept coming back to is the simplicity of having one bank because we have, uh, in terms of risks, like far bigger risk to us at that point was fraud, theft, other failures, having a single bank where we have multi-factor, where we have alerts, where we have different levels of user permissions, where we have invested the time to know the systems and to know that that money is secure. I was much more uh, worried about the money walking out of the bank than I was about the bank collapsing. And that was obviously miscalibrated, but that was my point of view. We'll link in the show notes. I know how worried you are about risk because you've been on our show before talking about you guys handle so many, so much data for so many customers that when security was upgraded, you were one of the first on the state of the art new security systems that open were available banking. out there. Yeah, that's right. Open. We were the pioneer in open banking in our, that, in our market. That's that right. was super cool. So with this collapse, 
I'm wondering if there were though, were there ever Silicon Valley salespeople enticing you? Was there a, was it them rolling out the red carpet? Was it, uh, I mean, tell me about work. It just sounds like to me from what you've said so far, just very easy bank to work with. Yeah, that's it. There was no pressure from them. I know that with some customers there, they do provide uh, easier lines of credit or mortgages for executives, for example. That's what I was going to ask. If you, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. If you got a special deal, because we've heard a lot no. about exactly what you're talking about. Hey, if you're the CEO and you bring your mortgage here too, you give you know right. give us your personal stuff, then yeah. we'll we'll throw in some extra bells and whistles. Yeah, I mean, no. <laughs> Maybe I should have been asking for more, but but honestly, I mean, what they what they offered was just the simplicity of a bank that was really easy to work with. If we raise money, the money goes in. As we spend it, the money comes out. They are comfortable with uh, larger sums of money moving around in ways that might trip alerts with other banks. I, I actually, I have, through the course of Tiller, I have tried four other banks in addition to Silicon Valley just to experiment with, is there a better bank out there from Wells Fargo to some uh, up and running neobanks? And I ended up canceling each of those accounts because they were just harder to work with for a business like ours. And we just stuck with what we knew, Silicon Valley Bank. The banking collapse obviously happened very quickly. You just told me that two days before you're talking to your CFO, obviously nothing there. When did you first get the rumbling that there might be problems coming? On Thursday, Silicon Valley Bank stock price dropped precipitously. I sent a note to our CFO and I said, this is interesting. And the news around it was clear that they had some duration issues where people were pulling money faster than they had planned. And so they had some longer term investments that they were having to sell because the interest rates had gone up. They were selling those at a loss. So they, they were, there was a loss that was investors weren't expecting. So from an investor perspective, the stock was being hammered. We exchanged notes and at that point, I did not, I specifically used the word solvency. I didn't see any solvency issue, like more volatility than it seen with the bank. Didn't see a solvency issue. Uh, we both agreed nothing to do there. That was Thursday. Yeah. And then, and, um, and, and, yeah. and lo and behold, behind the scenes, there were some threads going around among some other companies. There was money coming out. And by the end of Thursday, you know, the FDIC was involved. So there was more happening than you could pick up on in the news on, on Thursday. But there's this this question that we talked about on our show when we were talking about what must have been going through through CEOs' minds. You wake up then Friday morning, and I guess yeah. you find out. When did you find out on Friday that the worst had happened? Yeah, on Friday, it was first thing in the morning, and it was clear that there was a lot of money leaving or trying to leave Silicon Valley Bank that people were concerned about a run. And the, the challenge with a bank run is it's, it's uh, the psychology of a bank run is that once people lose confidence, everyone wants out, right? And so at that point, it was crystal clear this is a totally different situation than what we saw Thursday. And there's a full-on bank run. And, and at, at that point, my next step was, can we get any money out? And I knew that in doing that, I was both contributing to the bank run but I was also acting in the self-interest of Tiller, which I needed to do, which was we needed to get some or all of our money out. And that turned out to be for not at that. You know, we put in wire transfer requests on Friday. By the end of the day, there was no action on them and they were all canceled. The FDIC was sort of shutting things down. And it was a few hours after I 
tried those wire transfers uh, that the FDIC said the bank is, is shut down. Were you involved in any CEO groups talking to other customers of uh, SVB about what they were doing? I was corresponding Friday and then through the weekend, and everyone was in shock. Everyone was constantly refreshing their their feeds, their news feeds to see what, what was new, what uh, people were trying. You could see there were some people who went in line to physical branches at Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, many of us were online. The website was slow to respond. But there really wasn't at that point anything other than knowing that I was going through an experience that others were going through, which is some help. Uh, at that point, the run had started and there was no there was no getting any cash out. Everybody else is considering taking up drinking heavily as well. Right? Exactly. Friday morning drinks. That's right. Peter and I, by the way, are having this discussion live on the Fireside app. If you want to uh, join us for future Fireside apps, just download the Fireside app and follow me on Fireside. Just put in Joe Salcihi and then it'll come up whenever we're doing something live. But we also simulcast YouTube and we have a YouTube comment, Peter. James, who also works in finance for his company, is a, I know James, well, not incredibly well, but James and I have talked a few times. James said almost exactly what we went through, his company. He said, including the timing and how we felt on Thursday night. So it wasn't uncommon what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you probably don't know James, right. but but what he was feeling yeah. was the same thing you were feeling. Yeah. And I think we were all going through this uh, a similar roller coaster that day, the next day through that weekend. But yeah, thanks, James, for sharing that. Yeah. So now, now it is Friday. You've access to literally no money. I have to imagine that weekend... You know, you joked earlier about, <laughs> about hey, there's no bank run, but what was going on that weekend with you and your CFO? What was the discussion then, knowing that yes. you, on Friday yeah. you couldn't get your money out? So on Friday at the end of the day, I met with our CFO, actually in the afternoon, and we quickly started doing some emergency planning. And Taylor being Taylor, we have our forecast, our budget all in a spreadsheet, and That's weird. We could... I would have never expected that. <laughs> and so we took our cash available cash balance from seven you know, figures down to one. It was a zero. And then we're like, okay, how do we plan with this? And then how do we plan presuming all we knew at that point is that 250000 was FDIC insured. So at some point in the near future, it wasn't clear exactly when, but it seemed early in the week. I forget exactly when we knew that timing, but some point in the next week or two, we're going to see 250000 The rest, we don't know. So we quickly revised the budget, and Audrey, who's amazing, uh, came up with the, the new numbers. And the amazing thing about it was, by the end of Friday, we had a plan for Tiller to progress through the year and progress into the future indefinitely, basically shift into profitability and pull back new investments, but keep the whole team intact you know, we would give up some significant new investments that we were really excited about this year and next, but we could trim that and we could survive. And so with that information, my next step was to email our investors and say, our money is gone, hopefully temporarily. <laughs> the bank is shut down and, and here's where we're at. And then I sent, I forwarded that message that I, I wrote to our investors, to our team. And I, you know, I'm sorry to ruin your Friday night, but our bank is shut down and all of our money was there. Audrey and I have just been scrubbing the numbers and we have a plan to move forward and we'll all have our jobs and Tiller will make it through this 
even in the worst case scenario that we have 250,000. So that backstop, knowing that we had a plan, was sort of critical. And now going through the weekend, I went on many long walks with my wife. I had conversations with our CFO and with some team members. I talked to other CEOs that I know. I was constantly checking the news. But but it was this interesting weekend where I was both, I sure as heck wanted that that money back, right? But I also knew, it's like, you know what? Actually, one of our team members uh, on Friday night after I sent out that bleak message was like, you know what? We're, we will be stronger through this, whatever the outcome. And then gave the little emoji with the, you know, the, the muscle and the bicep. And I was like, that is right. That is right. And so it was this interesting where I was like highly stressed through the weekend because I wanted all of our money back. Sure. But I also knew we're going to get through this. So are you alluding to the fact that because you had a pretty awesome spreadsheet at your disposal, you were able to calculate a plan faster? Is that what you're alluding to? Uh, alluding? You got it. That's it, Joe. And that is what Tiller's in the business of helping our customers, which is why this is like such an awesome story. Because when you have a plan, you can deviate from that plan. And we we're like, okay, we got to deviate. Let's remove a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of zeros. Well, but yes, I- that plan. I mean, I cannot imagine navigating through Friday, Saturday, Sunday without having had a plan and then being able to look at it and say, life is different now. What if? And here's our plan B. Well, and I do want to go back to Friday while the two of you were calculating that plan because, you know, the story was, as you've read all the stories, I'm sure, Peter, like we have, and we reported on on Sunday with that special episode that we had, that so many CEOs out there were having to face probable layoffs because of the fact that paychecks that don't clear pierce the corporate veil. And now you and your board are all then then personally responsible. And that ends up becoming problematic, frankly, for everybody. Was there a time during that period where it looked like you might have to lose some staff members before you were able to navigate around that? No, we knew on Friday that we were going to proceed with the whole team. And in fact, on Friday, I had made a job offer to a new engineer, and I had the confidence with that plan that 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 you could uh, offer we him a job for to... thirty five bucks. <laughs> right. He was going to pay us to work at Tiller, and then make it all work. Uh, <laughs> talk about fun- talk about creative funding. That's creative funding. <laughs> you love Tiller so much. How much are you going to pay us? No, uh, like a really talented, awesome guy who I was really excited. And I had the confidence I could make the offer without hesitation because I knew we could. And that's, you know, that's unique to Tiller. That's unique to like where we are in our evolution. And we do have the flexibility to decide to pull back in investments and emphasize profitability with our current team. And we could do that. Uh, not every company could do that, right? So that is a benefit of sort of our stature in our evolution and where we are at. But for us, I mean, that would have been still a, not the future I wanted because there's a lot that we're investing into that we would be pulling back on, but the, the team would stay in place. Yeah. We should have had James with us live as well as he's uh, over on YouTube. James says that weekend was the worst. We had payroll being pulled on Tuesday as well for 40 employees. The CEO is away, so it was just me putting in plans and trying to figure out where I could pull in money. I wanted to ask you a question on that note. Some of these other CEOs you were corresponding with, were they contemplating layoffs? Were you, some of these reports we were getting in the news that a lot of people were maybe going to be let go on Monday. Did you see that from a front row seat with other companies? For sure. I, and I think the, uh, the, it was just the uncertainty, right? So there was the uncertainty 
beyond 250,000 of, well, first the uncertainty of even with the 250,000, how the heck to get through cash flow. For larger companies, their payroll would exceed that. And so even the 250,000 doesn't get them through a payroll, right? That just the working capital needs are, are greater than that. And then there's the, um, uh, for companies that don't have a choice to get to profitability, then it's this uncertainty, right? So, okay, 250,000 is insured for the uninsured portion. Do we get 90 cents on the dollar? Do oh, we yeah, get 80 right. cents on the dollar? Right, right. Do we get 50 cents? Is it 20 cents? And honestly, faced with that, if that uncertainty lasted into the new week, yes, I think there would have been many people who would have said, who would have told their team members, I have to let you go. If I find out other news, I'll be on the phone as soon as I can to let you know. But I can't commit because we have no money. This was a massive wrench in the gears of so many companies. That was a common scenario for many other companies. In our second half of this discussion, I'm going to widen the discussion with Peter. And we're going to talk about from there. Where do you, where do you go from there? What lessons were learned? What can we all learn what can we do differently with our money because of not just uh, Silicon Valley Bank, but maybe for banking as well. But before we get to that, we have to, because it's a special episode, we have to keep podcasting. So we need a word from our sponsors and we will be right back. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, Staggers, is Military Appreciation Month. You know what that means. We are recognizing all of our stackers in the audience. My good friend, Nords, Doug Nordman, who uh, some of you may know, he is a writer in personal finance. He's a guy I'd like to do. A shout out to, he is such a giving member of the FIRE community, the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Uh, Nords will do anything for you. It's just, just, I think some of that comes from his time on a submarine, like my nephew Colin, who's on a submarine right now, and all the work that uh, he did there. Just a super giving member of the community. And you know what? A Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate their members who go above and beyond, not this month, but every month. Navy Federal offers members only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Here's one of their offers in honor of Military Appreciation Month. Join and get $50 when you open a credit card. Of course, you want to have your whole debt strategy planned out, don't you? Don't just go open a credit card willy-nilly, as mom says. Uh, here's a disclaimer. You got to join, open your membership savings account between May 1st and May 31st. So get on it stackers. Annual percentage yield is a 0.25% for membership savings account, $5 minimum balance to open, maintain your membership savings account to obtain the bonus. Visit navyfederal.org for full terms and conditions. That's just one of the things they offer 24 seven help for their us based service members. They have resources all over the place. Head to Navy federal org for full terms, conditions, and other offers. Navy and Federal is insured by NCUA Equal Housing Lender. Welcome back to our special episode about the banking collapse. And Peter Polson from Tiller 
has been nice enough to give us his front row seat, but maybe Peter more of a front row seat than you probably wanted uh, to, to, to this whole thing. Yes. In this case, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Second half of this discussion is brought to you by Magnify Money. Uh, do you know, Peter, what happens when you go to stackybenjamins.com slash Magnify Money? Good things happen. I know. Great things. You, you find yourself skipping everywhere. Just just <laughs> skipping wherever wherever you go, like you're in some type of commercial. Uh, you find out that that brick and mortar bank that you're banking at, boy, while we're talking banking, how about that one? Maybe doesn't have the best rates out there. You can find fee-free checking accounts. You can find high-yield savings accounts, CD rates, and more that maybe your brick-and-mortar bank. Head to stackybenjamins.com slash money where you can compare rates, maybe ditch your bank, switch banks, and compare. We're talking about banking and being careful, though. Let's talk about that, about being careful. So in, in the first half of this discussion, you and your CFO had had a discussion, you know, just two days earlier about the simplicity of banking with just one bank. Is that your feeling today now a little bit more removed? Are you going to maybe have a secondary bank? We will have a secondary bank for sure. It'd be foolish coming out of this not to. I don't expect to go through that again, but we will have a second bank. Does that eliminate though? You know, I know that you weren't taking the free blanket or the Frisbee or stuff that, and I'm joking, but we heard about how some people were looking for special relationship, right? So they would keep a lot of money with one bank. Do you feel like that will exclude you from any preferential treatment that a bank may give you because you're going to stick to a smaller amount at any one bank? I think that all the banks know that the rules of engagement have, have evolved and that prudent companies are just going to uh, have diversity in where they keep their deposits. So uh, I think banks just have to, to alter that. The good news is good banks will maybe lose half of their uh, half of the amounts in, in some of their accounts, and they will get new accounts because of that diversity. So I think for solid banks, it should all net out. James on YouTube is saying now, before it's, it's you, me, and James having a conversation. Excellent. <laughs> James says, before the full backdrop, the advanced dividend promised by the FDIC was probably the only thing stopping layoff calls for a lot of companies. I think that was true, but I want to ask about that, Peter. You know, if this weren't such a big bank collapsing, if this wasn't so big, if this was somebody who was with a small bank, it might have turned out differently, not just for Tiller or for James Company or for other companies, um, it might have turned out a lot if it wasn't going to make front page headlines. Like, do you feel like this was warranted, that this was appropriate, that this banking collapse was handled differently than what, you know, we're all promised 250000 and no more? I think that I mean, we have seen many bank failures. Uh, I was in Seattle when Washington Mutual failed. Oh, yeah. And they were, that is the largest bank failure to date. They were a dominant bank. I knew so many people who worked there. They were big sponsors of many of arts and sports in Seattle. And Washington Mutual failed, and it was a shock. What's interesting, living in Seattle at that time, I mean, you walk down the block and every other house had WAMU accounts, Washington Mutual accounts. Sure. No one was worried about their deposits. They, they experienced some withdrawals, but there was no, there was nothing like what we saw with Silicon Valley Bank. And through that failure and then the eventual sale to JP Morgan Chase, there was no concern about deposits. So banks fail. And traditionally, when banks fail, shareholders get wiped out. Management often gets tossed out. But what was unique here is that with the bank run. It was initiated by a bank run because absent the bank run, it's likely that Silicon Valley Bank would have weathered the losses, 
they uh, likely would have been solvent without absent a bank run. But if everyone asks for their money at the same time, no bank can survive that. Literally no bank has all the money there. Digitally or physically, they do not have all the money available same day. Many of them have portions of it invested a year or multiple years out. So what was unique here is that there was a bank run and that deposits were in question. And I honestly haven't been able to find much precedent for it. I know if you go back to the 30s when the yeah. uh, FDIC was created to ensure there's plenty of precedent, but I actually haven't been able to find a good historical context. Maybe James here has that for us, <laughs> but what for a historical context for like when depositors have lost money, that is unprecedented that I'm um, in my knowledge, which is limited in my lifetime, having lived through you know, the epicenter of the 2008 collapse, uh, living a few miles from WAMU's headquarters. Uh, anyway, the idea that deposits would disappear potentially or, or be shrunk was unprecedented, even though, yes, we know the FDIC only insures 250000 It just wasn't, uh, we just haven't seen it. And so I think the trust in the banking system would have shaken and shuddered. And on Monday, if the uninsured deposits were not guaranteed, every company out there would start moving money. And out of that, some banks would win, some banks would lose, therefore more banks would collapse. There'd be massive flows and the banking system would have had tremendous pain and hardship. And there would have been many other banks that would find themselves on the short end of that stick as, as everyone was like, I, I'm not gonna, why would I keep more than 250,000 anywhere? And I think that was what the government saw over the course of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, that's what caused them to make the decision to protect the uninsured deposits. And that's how this unfolded. Because yeah, it would have been, I believe, fairly catastrophic to the banking industry. I'm not saying if it's the right or the wrong decisions yeah. are done. It just, it was, it would have been catastrophic. Well, yeah. And, and these end up ultimately, right, becoming political discussions and that's above our pay grade. Right. We don't do that on Stacky Benjamins, but it does make me, <laughs> I will say this though, it does make me frustrated. And I've seen this um, on behalf of community banks. I bank at a community bank. Man, if you're a smaller yes. bank, if I banked at a smaller bank and this had happened to a smaller bank, none of this would have happened. Your investors would have been screwed. Employees of some of these companies might've been screwed. If you didn't have access to the awesome spreadsheets that you have access to, you might not have Absolutely. been able to develop such a good plan. And it makes me feel like a lot of people are going to run to bigger banks because of that. And they're going to run away from community banks. And, yes. and I find that, that for, and clearly you and I aren't going to solve that problem today, but, it, but I, I worry about that too. The government has special oversight and regulations of the systemically important banks, the JP Morgans and the bank of America's. And so there's different rules. And basically, they've said, we can't let these banks fail. I think if there isn't clarification there that we want to create an equal playing field, then I think we'll see a ton of small banks disappearing. I think that would be a huge loss. I think the small banks, the community banks, just as Silicon Valley Bank was helpful to us, there's a bank in Kansas that understands that the farmer down the road who wants to buy a combine better than any other bank, certainly better than Bank of America, is going to be able to provide him a loan. And at industry-specific, geographic-specific banks, they make small businesses work in this country, yeah. and we can't afford to lose that. And so I do feel that would be a tragedy if the net-net is that people just move their money to the largest banks. Absent clarification, it's possible. Yeah. Well, let's go back to the stuff that we can control. 
which is what we do with this, right? I mean, for you, there's a bunch of lessons. I think for our individual stacker communities, for everybody in your community and our community, there's some lessons. What are the big takeaways you think that people should have? That's a great question. So we've hit on the planning piece already. Like having a plan was critical. And, and I'll say actually to step back at the biggest picture, like for me, this was uh, as someone who I could sort of list off the litanies, the, the sort of existential risks to Tiller that we were managing. And this was just not on that list, but that's a long list. And as a team, we're constantly looking at that and managing it. The, the biggest, so the first thinking about that in terms of our lives, the biggest lesson is to be prepared for that, that unexpected event, that black swan. And that could be that the company I work for uh, no longer is giving me a paycheck for reasons X, Y, or Z. It could be that there's an issue with my bank. It could be that someone in my family, uh, there's a cancer or uh, illness or unexpected death, right? Things happen. And so then how do we build resilience? How do we build resilience in our finances, our personal finances, so that we can be prepared for the unexpected? So thinking about that, because we know the unexpected will happen. We don't know exactly what and if it's something, <laughs> but we know it's going to happen. So planning, uh, having a budget, a plan in place that we can fall back to and we can alter and we can deviate. Part of that is also having an emergency fund, ideally. Uh, and, you know, in light of this, maybe good to think about diversity in terms of having some of that in two different places. Boy, this speaks huge uh, to emergency I funds, I think. Hugely to absolutely, emergency funds. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Equally as important personally, right? Because what if our bank is offline for some reason? Maybe it's a failure. Maybe it's a technical failure. Maybe it's a like a bank failure. Uh, maybe my account is specifically shut down. I don't know. But what if my number one bank is lying? Do I have a backup? The second lesson. So first is planning. Second is transparency. And I, for us as a company, like when we had our all company retreat in November, we walked through our financial plan. And we share our finances regularly with the team and being able to communicate to the team on Friday, here's what we're doing, here's what we know, and here's our new plan. That's so important. And each of us in our own lives, you know, if we're sharing finances with someone else, building that culture of communication and transparency around money. So when the you know, stuff hits the fan, like... We're not starting at ground zero where we've never talked about money. We actually have sat around the table in good times and talked about money. So now that things are really potentially bleak, we can talk about it together. That is incredibly important. The upside, because I want to linger on this point for a second, because I think it's so important. It's funny. Over the years, you hear people like you talking about transparency and the number of guests we've had come on, talk about transparency. And yet, as you know, we don't like to talk about money in America. We don't, you know, we want it to be lack of transparency. And yet when you have transparency, the number of good things that can happen, somebody that might not have had access can give you a hint, give you a clue. You can look into somebody else's situation like we are right now and learn some things from a mistake that they made or something good that they did. Like transparency is so great and there's so much resistance to it. And yet you know, there's a few times people come on, Peter, and I think, okay, this is their thing, right? It's their niche. It's their deal. But this transparency hammer, guest after guest after guest talks about, and it's probably the thing that frustrates me the most is that we're, we're still very opaque about our money. And yet I'm with you. It's so important. Yeah, no, it's critically important. And I think related to that, one of the things we talk about at Tiller, and I think this is also just a good value in our personal lives, you know, is... Uh, giving people the benefit of the doubt and also 
having like knowing what your purpose and what your mission is. And we leaned heavily on both of those Friday with all this communication with investors, with our team is like, ultimately, here's what we're here for. And we can fulfill that mission, even if we are only left with 250,000. And also the benefit of the doubt. I mean, ultimately, who's accountable for losing the money? I am. It's an FDIC rule. It was clear. I could have recited it 10 years ago. I could have recited it two weeks ago. I knew I took this, I made the decision, like it was all on me. And so ultimately, like owning that and knowing that everyone would, would be with me and be with Tiller. And we're like, let's figure this out. That is sort of part of transparency and communication, right? Is sharing that benefit of the doubt and knowing what you're here for. Wow. And then the third piece that I'll share, so planning, transparency, and the third one is just redundancy. And it is in the obvious ways, like maybe I'm going to have two bank accounts. That's a good thing personally in all of our lives, two sets of credit cards in case one or debit cards in case one's not working. But also if you think about the other things that could fail. What if I was locked out of my computer? Or what if I, the phone that has all my passwords on it is gone? And now, how, like, what's my backup plan to get my account numbers and passports? Thinking about redundancy, thinking about what are those things I rely on that could fail, those single points of failure. And I think luckily for us, while there was a single point of failure with the checking account, in so many other areas, we had redundancy and do have redundancy. And that made things easier. But I think that's a really important thing for all of us personally to consider is redundancy. What if? That's why uh, Doug keeps all of his passwords just on a piece of paper on the wall. Just <laughs> just, just make sure. The post-it note. <laughs> that's right. What could go wrong with that? I mean, what could? Come on. That's such great stuff. Peter, let's talk for a second because every time I talk to you, you guys are innovating at Tiller. Clearly, this situation has you thinking even more about innovation where I, I thought before it was impossible that you think about innovation more than you already do. Because every time I talk to you, you're excited about the next thing. So what's coming up next with Tiller? Last year, we did a significant partnership with Microsoft. Microsoft is now promoting Tiller to their Microsoft 365 customers. And so in addition to our roots with Google Sheets, now we have this a significant solution with Excel that's on par with Google Sheets. That has led to just an epic back half of last year, and this year is off to the races for us. And so continuing to invest on both Google Sheets and Microsoft Excel, one of the things that's coming back into the limelight right now is the capabilities and the, the things on coming down the pike with, with AI around what you can do in your Sheets with some of the built-in tooling with Google and Microsoft is extremely exciting. And we're really looking forward to leveraging some of that to benefit our customers. One of our big initiatives right now too, is just making Tiller easier for everyone to get started. Uh, we know we're, we're already one of the stickiest solutions out there where customers who come to us and get set up with their finances, they don't leave because they love it and they've invested. And we're working at making it easier for everyone who hasn't tried Tiller to just try it and to just get stuck even faster uh, in a good way, stuck, <laughs> hooked, hooked. And, uh, and so that's a really big initiative for us right now too. And you mentioned open banking. I'll just highlight that. We're continuing to add more banks with open banking. We've been a pioneer there. It's the safest way to share credentials with us. Uh, not credential. There's no sharing of credentials. Yeah. It's the safest it's a way to share. Read-only access. Yeah, yeah read-only access that you control with, with a solution like Tiller so we can feed your transactions and balances into your private spreadsheet updated every day. And that's all stuff we've been talking about. We have a, a number of initiatives that will pop up in the middle of the year that I'll be excited to say more about. And 
we're really fired up. The team's here fired up. I, I can't tell. You can't tell at all. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Polson, thanks for joining us, by the way, and it's tillerhq.com. Thank you for uh, talking about transparency, sharing your horrible front row roller coaster ride that you had, what, just over, well, by the time this airs, two weeks ago. Just unbelievable. Right. Yeah. Thanks a ton. Uh, we will link to Tiller, by the way, in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. That's going to do it for today's special episode. Thanks for hanging out with us, everybody. Uh, next Friday, we'll have our roundtable back with more fun and hilarity. I'm Joe, and he's Peter. And Mr. Doug, it's all yours now. Take it away. Thanks for joining us on today's special episode of The Stacking Benjamin Show. Thanks also to Peter Paulson for joining us. You'll find Peter's company, Tiller, at TillerHQ.com. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2023, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. This show was written by Lacey Langford, who's also the host of The Military Money Show, with help from me, Joe, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Kevin Bailey helps us take a deeper dive into all the topics covered on each episode in our newsletter called The 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at The 201. Just visit stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Tina Eichenberg makes the video version of this show. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude and Kate Yunkin are our social media coordinators, and Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com basement. Not only should you not take advice from these nerds, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at the Stacking Benjamin Show. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.
All right. That is that. We actually have a question for you. We have a live question. Our friend Chris. I don't know Chris personally, but I feel like I do because Chris has asked questions before. Chris, you weren't here at the beginning, so we just wanted to do the recording first for the podcast. And then, you know, part of the reason I love this app like you do is because we can take questions then later as long as he can be here. But what's up, Chris? How are you? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I'm Chris Rosetti in San Francisco. Appreciate the opportunity to ask a question. Very informative broadcast as always. Two questions actually have formed now. Uh, one is, have you approached Huey Lewis in the news to use his song, Happy to be Stuck with You, for your right. Tiller commercial on TV? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great idea, Peter. That's like built in. Going to borrow that idea. I love it. <laughs> and, and, and Huey, yeah, by the way, it, yeah. as you know, Chris, Huey, with his problems with his voice, like he might be looking for additional revenue. Yeah. I mean, he appeared on the King of Queens uh, sitcom years ago and did some songs there. So who knows what he's looking for? Yeah. That'd be, that'd awesome. be a step down from being a spokesperson for Tiller. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the real question is uh, wealth is all perception. Of course, we know that it's all about perception. I mean, there are people, I guess, somewhere in the world that think big rocks in front of their huts makes them wealthy. So my question is this, the perception that there's going to be failure causes the runs on the banks, but the reality of the books doesn't lie. What's the old expression? Uh, figures don't lie, but liars figure. So I was, I was wondering, is there a, a big oversight on banks by the government nowadays? I don't even know. Do they look at the bank's books constantly or should there be, if there's not, thank you for your answer. Wow. That's a great question. And by the way, everybody here on fireside, make sure you listen to Chris's antidepressant of the day. He's got a great show. And Peter, if I had Chris's voice, I would burn mine. I would just get rid of mine. <laughs> Holy crap. Uh, do you, did you know the answer to the FDIC question? Yeah, that's a good question. So what's true is that with the regulation that was put in in 2008, it was uh, rolled back more recently for some of these regional banks. But I don't know that it necessarily would have triggered Alarms. So where did Silicon Valley Bank, what were they doing with these deposits? Most of it was in government securities. Right. There was some of it, there was some portion of it that was in venture debt, right? So I don't know, maybe 10%, give or take, which means they were loaning it out to other companies like Tiller. We don't have venture debt, but companies like us that, that needed it. And that is a part of their portfolio that had, had performed well in the past. Maybe there's some risk there. But most of their portfolios was in uh, securities that actually would be considered safe. The problem is that they were longer durations. And most of the regulations out there don't cover the duration mismatch, which is, and the duration mismatch is Silicon Valley Bank is thinking, okay, we have this many billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. We think the chances are that so much of it might be needed in the next six months, so much might be needed in the next year, and then they can invest accordingly. And as it turned out, their cash was being pulled faster because companies were not raising new cash, but they were instead spending more of the cash that they had at Silicon Valley Bank. So over the last several months, that started to be a mismatch with how Silicon Valley had invested the depositor money. And that's not something that the regulations have focused on explicitly enough. And so I think that is a really good, that's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, I think coming out of this, what depositors most want from their bank is to just know that the money is going to be there. If you want, if you want risk, put it in the stock market. People know that you can have a portfolio of stocks and that's a whole different game. But if you're putting money in a bank, I think the you know, interest rates 
interest is, is a plus and that's great. But the most important thing is people want to know that that money is there. And I think that is in question. That's not as clear now as it was. And I guess just specifically here, one other point on Silicon Valley Bank is, you know, that mismatch as interest rates rose, uh, if interest rates were constant and they had a, let's say a five-year security, a government security with a certain interest rate, they could sell that probably for its face value and they could uh, match that deposit. Yeah. Yeah. They'd been fine. They could the withdrawal. They would have matched the withdrawal. The problem is interest rates have gone up. So if interest rates are much higher, something that's locked in for five years at a low interest rate, now it's it's worth a lot less and you can't trade it for anything close to what you bought it for. If they held on to it, it would eventually be paid out because it's a government security and it's going to be paid out. So that duration mismatch combined with rising interest rates put them in a pinch and has put other banks in a, you know, to different degrees in a pinch, as we've seen with some of the other bank issues. But I think the issue for regulators is how to uh, give depositors a confident place to put their money and know it's safe, ideally without having to have an enormous portfolio of of uh, accounts yep. for, especially for businesses or large depositors. And Chris, like Peter, I'm also not a banker, but I do know that there is frequent reporting that the banks are required to do to the FDIC so that they maintain a certain amount of capital. And they also need to know the the security of the capital. So as an example, that venture debt will be on a different line than treasuries. So the FDIC wants to know how secure is the capital that's underneath these deposits I know that, by the way, from a few recent interviews I've done with people talking about how they were putting money on these banks' uh, balance sheet, and FDIC was giving them fits. They're like, oh, you're putting some sketchy debt on these balance sheets. So they want to know the quality of the debt that's out there. Um, I also know they have the ability to go in and look whenever they want. Uh, they have to be able to go in and look whenever they want. The bank can't go, no, it's not due till Tuesday. They can't, they, can't, they can't do that. So I don't know exactly, because I'm not a banker either, I don't know exactly how often it is, but I do know it's fairly frequent that they're allowed to go. And 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 to your point, Peter, you know, back to the run, Silicon Valley Bank started this run themselves by just being crystal clear that they needed to raise more money. And that created that stock collapse that you were talking about, the significant price drop in the stock was when Silicon Valley came out and said, uh, we're going to need to to get some more, you know, we're going to need to kind of credit Swiss this situation to use a analogy from today. We're going to need to duct tape it. So that's uh, uh, pretty well. I don't know how to end that sentence. But anyway, Peter, man, thank you for offering to do this. This is huge. Absolutely, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I always, always enjoy talking with you. And I, well, and it's so enlightening and just, I don't know, for me to even talking to you today, riding that roller coaster, just of of hearing you go through the events, I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> just uh, yeah. better you than me, brother. 